We're just coming off of Thanksgiving, so I suppose this is a Thanksgiving message. Well, it is a Thanksgiving message, but for our congregation and even for for things that have transpired of late, it's a difficult one with uh, the trials that have beset us and uh, and these members of our family. And so Psalm 107 seems to speak to our situation. Sometimes Thanksgiving is challenging when trials come upon us. So how are we thankful amidst various trials in this fallen world? Let's consider together. Psalm 107, it's the first psalm of book five of the Psalms, calls for praises of thanksgiving for the God who redeems people from their various conditions and crises. It begins with a formulaic call to praise that is directed to the redeemed of God. So God is calling his redeemed to give him praise. Romans 1, interestingly, characterizes the unredeemed as those who do not honor God or give thanks. Often it goes without our notice that uh, not honoring God or giving thanks to him is the very heart of the fallen condition. Well, if that was the case, what would you imagine is the very heart of the redeemed? To honor God and to give thanks. It's most basic to who we are. It's part of what we were redeemed from and redeemed to. The creatures who acknowledge the creator as he is and sing praises of thanksgiving to him. So Psalm 107 instructs as to the wise pattern of a life of praise and thanksgiving that the redeemed of the Lord should follow. So this is a pattern for you to follow in your lives. Well, real quick, I want to give you an overview just so you can follow the structure of this psalm. Verses 1 through 3 provide a big picture backdrop of the redemption of God. Uh, Then there follows four stories. So this is going to be a sermon of stories. It will be fun. Uh, The first one is the Lord's deliverance for wandering strangers and aliens. The second, the Lord's deliverance for rebellious prisoners. The third, the Lord's deliverance for afflicted fools. And the final one, the Lord's deliverance for seafarers at their wits' end. So any of you guys that are younger, there is a seafaring story for you. There's no pirates, but there's a story nonetheless. These stories all follow a pattern. Thomas liked that. They followed a pattern. One is the dilemma. Two, prayer to God amidst that dilemma. Three, the details of God's deliverance. And then four, communal thanksgiving to God. This is the wise pattern that the redeemed of God should come to follow. There's a double refrain that happens in each story, and and therein is the, the heart of each message. Here's what it is. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. Next refrain. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. You'll hear that over and over and over. Finally, the final verses, and this is what makes this psalm unique. It's actually a psalm of thanksgiving, but there's a wisdom song in the end. So really it's a a psalm of thanksgiving and wisdom. Um, 
the final verses are a hymn of the theme of the providence of God. And what they're asking you to do is to observe the way God works and to, if you're wise, to align your life with those patterns of God's divine loving care, his sovereignty. Well, let's begin with prayer. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all the good and perfect gifts that you give to us. Uh, we ask that you would speak to our very hearts this morning from your word. Show us wonderful things. Stir us to praise and thanksgiving to you, our great God and King. And we'll ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Well, the first three verses, and don't be discouraged, but these bring up a gospel that we're not all that familiar with, and it's very important that we understand it. Here are the first three verses in Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Those he redeemed from the hand of the adversary. And those he gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and the south. We don't always share the gospel of God's deliverance from the hand of the adversary. So it's a little unique. So I'm going to take just a little time to go through that gospel so you get what it is. And we do see here that God is gathering his redeemed from all over the world, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as we all know. But who is this adversary? Well, we know him to be the father of lies. And, and, and we need to understand this about this father of lies. We need to understand how he came into the picture. And really, it helps us understand why we're where we're at. So he came and deceived the woman in the garden, did he not? And she and Adam were tempted, and they sinned. And when they sinned, they actually committed divine treason. You see, God had entrusted the rule of this earth to them, and they were to submit to God and rule over his great creation. But instead, in divine treason, they rejected God's rule. They rejected his law. And actually, when they rejected it, they handed that rule over to Satan, whereby he now rules over this current earth, does he not? And when they handed that rule over to Satan, what they actually did was come under the very rule that God had stewarded them as they handed it over to Satan. And so we have the fallen state of things. We have been fallen in our sin, for we did sin. Satan rules over this current world, and what he does is he appeals to the desires of our flesh through the world. So you've got Sin in the flesh, the world, and Satan. Satan is the one in whose hand all those things reside. And he is making appeals, according to our flesh, for us to continue in our rebellion. That's the bondage that we find this world and even uh, the, the people of this world in. But it's interesting, and, and Scripture confirms this, we come to find that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So as we hear these stories, you'll notice some things about these stories. You'll notice that some of them speak of the fallenness around us whereby we become victims in need of redemption. Others refer to our own sin where we are victims of our own hand. But ultimately, we need to understand this. Satan the power and the forces of evil in the spiritually realms are the ones who are behind all of that. 
Our gospel often focuses just on me and my personal salvation, but there's something on a cosmic level that's happening, and we need to understand reality through that lens. And you might wonder, why does God not just overthrow Satan? Well, the Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward the redeemed, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It's because he's accomplishing a work of redemption. And he will not come and overthrow Satan, by which he would also overthrow all who followed him, until that work of redemption is finally complete. Praise God for that. So how is God redeeming people? And listen, you'll hear Satan through all of this. Hebrews says this, Since the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise also partook of the same flesh and blood, that through death Christ might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, our adversary, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So you see the picture. In fear of death, which by the way is a just wages for our sin, we go around trying to seek after our lives. And rather than serve God and love Him and love others as God created us to, we go around serving ourselves in sin, grabbing for all the things that Satan is making appeal to us through the world that say it'll give us life, that we might find it somewhere else. That's the bondage that we're in. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, disarms the power of Satan, which is the fear of death. We no longer need fear. So the gospel reverses, reverses this condition. Christ's love compels us. Christ died for all, so that they who live may no longer live for themselves, grasping as they are for life in fear of death, but from him who died and rose again on their behalf. But we find out, and you all know all too well, Christ's love doesn't always compel us, does it? We hear from John, if you say you have no sin, you lie. You do. And so the question is this, and it's the question this psalm will answer. How does God's love play out in the context of a fallen world as us who are redeemed, being redeemed, and yet awaiting the time that we will finally reach full redemption? How does God's love play out? Well, it plays out in a couple categories, and I, want, I made mention of them. I want you to notice them. The first one's this. They play out... God's love is given amidst the trials of this fallen world around us. Do you remember Job? And I want to note that this, these trials aren't side of, outside of God's sovereign control. Do you remember Job? A faithful man. And Satan comes to God and says, have you, uh, actually God said, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan wants to destroy him. And notice what God does. God draws the limit. He says, no, you may, you may take all he has, but you may not strike him down and kill him. So who's in control of this situation? God. And yet by whose hand are all things taken from Job? The hand of Satan. And by the way, by whose hand are, is Job redeemed and his fortunes returned? By the redeeming hand of God. So it's important to understand the way that this cosmic drama is playing out. James understood it when he said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
James saw that God in his sovereignty uses these trials to test us and produce endurance and faith in order to perfect us. Though Satan is the one who's bringing destruction and harm and the very trials that seem to destroy us. But yet, even Satan, in his greatest work of destruction, the crucifixion of Christ, notice what God did. God, as he always does, uses the means of Satan to accomplish his great redemption. And so in the crucifixion, which happened at the hands of Satan, so God came to forgive the sins of the world through Christ. The greatest work of treachery ended, God used to create the greatest means of redemption, the only means through Christ. And so we have to understand these things, and we have to stand, understand our trials through that lens. It's what will help us to endure. Second category. God's love, loyal love is often shown as discipline to us, as sons and as daughters, for sin that we have that aren't outside us, but inward, within us our own shortcomings, and we hear this. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so these are the two categories we're going to find. God redeeming a fallen world outside of us that have come and encroached upon us in trials, and God redeeming us from our very own hand, still fallen and frail and in need of that complete work of redemption found in Christ. I'm going to be playing off of two things. I'm going to be playing off the stories we live. These are specific stories each of you live. And we need to understand our specific stories in light of the stories of God's people. But I'm also going to be talking about the story we live into. The story we live into is the grander narrative of redemption. And our story is a part of that story. But that larger story needs to always define where we are and what our stories mean. Otherwise, we will not be able to bear under the great trials that will surely come our way and indeed have already. Well, let's uh, continue here. The first story, it's story time. Y'all ready? This is the we part, so... You know, just relax and enjoy the story and put yourself into it. These stories are actually generalizations. You're supposed to put your story into that story. So be thinking about your life and reflecting upon your circumstances and how, how God's brought things about. Well, the first one's this, and this is a story that pervades all of Scripture and our lives. God's loyal love to aimless wanderers who were redeemed. Scripture goes this way, verse 4. They wandered in the wilderness to wander aimlessly in the wilderness, uh, in a desert region. The wilderness is a place where it doesn't sustain life, not for us. There's no food. There's no water. It's vast. It's, it's full of death and treacherous situations. And they wandered aimlessly in this wilderness. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. The inhabited city is where the provisions for life reside. They were hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Okay, it's a story, guys. I want you to imagine it for a moment. Imagine the context of this vast wilderness. There are mountains, there are desert, 
There's no sustenance for life. The sun's beating down. You're chafed, you're red, you're hurting, you're languishing. Consider the anxiety of being lost, not knowing your way, not knowing which way to go. Consider the fear that comes upon you as your resources dwindle down, as you lose hope when maybe over the next hill becomes a fading mantra that you don't even recite anymore. Not knowing what will come, that's always the worst, isn't it? Life faints within you, and it seems certain you and yours aren't going to make it through this one. Have you identified with the emotion, with the feelings? Do you have that sick feeling in the bottom of your stomach right now? Have you ever felt like that in life? Can we relate to a wanderer in a desert in a day of GPS and cars? I think we probably can. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use another way to show us that we can. Why do we work so hard? Students, why do you labor so incessantly for some level of popularity? Why do you worry about the right car, the right clothes, a place on the team, good grades, acceptance from your peers? Does it, does it wear you out? I know it does. Why do you do it? Adults, why do we labor so hard? for savings and some retirement and a nest egg, for possessions, those things that we think are going to somehow complete us, for education, for you, for your children, to make sure the path is clear for them so that the impending fear, the doom that, that stands looming out in the distance, it's because of the desperation of the situation of this world. We see it. No one's blind to it. Are we sometimes aimlessly wondering in this barren wilderness of our reality as our souls dwindle within us and the hopeless, hopelessness of this world descends upon us and what do we do? We grab for whatever we can that we think is going to give us life when we know as we look out everything in this world opposes life. We're all in a barren wilderness of sorts. We're all languishing way away in different ways. But everyone feels it. You feel the sickness in the bottom of your stomach. Well, do you hunger and thirst for certain provisions in the uncertainty of this life? Do you long for a home that you can permanently inhabit? A place to belong? place to find life. I think we all long for that. And the question is this, where is the straight path to the safe haven? Where our longings are satisfied and what shall we do to find it? Well, let's read verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way. So where they were wandering aimlessly so he gave them a straight path a straight path to go to an inhabited city where they could dwell and all the things of life would be 
Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he satisfies the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. I can tell you this, the Hebrew becomes very ambiguous right here. At first you thought you were talking about the hungry soul in a languishing uh, wilderness and now it comes to start to give hints that it might be speaking of spiritual realities. Not just hard, tactile realities here in this fallen world, but deeper realities, realities we can all relate to. Listen, this is the only long passage, but it, it so relates I felt compelled. And by the way, this is the passage Jesus quotes when he's tempted in the wilderness, so even more appropriate for us. Deuteronomy 8, 2 and following, and you can just listen and I've amended it some to try to shorten it down, but it so characterizes everything here, I felt appropriate to read it. God says to his people, You shall remember all the way which the Lord God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You see his work of redemption playing in the background at all times. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For, listen, the Lord your God is bringing you to a good land. And when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Does it sound exactly like our story? Because it is. And it's your story. And it's the grand story of God's redemption for the people he has redeemed. Indeed, we should sing praises of thanksgiving to our great God. Tell me about, think of your situation right now. Are you in a new stage of life? Are you heading to a new grade in school? I'll tell you this. It doesn't hold for you what you think it does. The promises it boasts, it won't deliver on. Are you single looking for a partner in life? Your partner won't complete you as you think they might. Are you a newlywed? Enjoy it. It's a long, hard road. Do you have small, needy children? These, these ones will start weeping right now. Oh, Lord, yes, I do. <laughs> Let me tell you this. It doesn't get easier. It just changes. Do you have a teenager? God help you. <laughs> By now, you know for certain that you and this world has fallen. Are you in between jobs? I'll tell you this. The next one won't give you what the last one lacked. Are you in a place you've never been in life? Wandering, beset by trials, not knowing your way through? Concerned if you'll come to the safe haven where you can find life? Well, you're in good company with all the redeemed of the Lord. For the scriptures say we are strangers and aliens in this world, for this world is not our home. 
you're right to long for something better and you're right that you're not going to find it in this life. For we are looking for a city whose foundations are in heaven. And yet, even on our way, just as in the wilderness with manna, God makes great provision. He gives a straight way. Indeed, he has shown us a straight path, but he even does now. And that's the story we live. And when he does, you need to sing praises of thanksgiving to him. That others in the same condition might also call out to God and find his deliverance. But here's the sweet thing. We have come to find through God's redemption that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the straight path. It's Jesus. And we know this, that he leads ultimately to the safe haven of the new heavens and the new earth, where God dwells with his people, where his people eat from the tree of life 12 months of the year and are satisfied, where they drink from the living waters that come from the throne and their thirst is quenched. That's the story we need to live into. And in living into that story, we can certainly sing praises and thanksgiving, for we have a hope that is sure and steadfast. Amen. Well, the second story gets more painful. The Lord's deliverance for rebellious imprisoned sinners. Verse 10, there were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death. Prisoners in misery and chains because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled and there was none to help. Have you ever been there before? Victims of your own sin? And yet God disciplines us in order to redeem us. Notice this is the second category. The trials that come upon us by our own hand, though Satan is still in the background. Let me ask some questions, and these aren't like to go, you, I just look in my own heart and go, what do I struggle with? And I share that with you, so if you think I'm trying to point my finger, just know, I, when I wrote it down, I knew there were three pointing back at me, that's why I wrote them down. But I want to help you to relate, because oftentimes we'll identify our rebellion against things like don't cuss, chew, or whatever, date girls that do. Whatever it is, you, we, we construct sometimes our false models of self-righteousness. And so let me do some that I'm pretty sure we're all going to fail on. Do you not give liberally so maybe you can have more for yourself? And yet do you find you continually come up short? Do you not necessarily seek to give preference to others, preferring instead your own way, only to come to find that you're never satisfied? Do you seek after your own life while the life you long for still continues to evade you? Do you seek all that the world has to offer and to follow Christ, finding that you continually forsake him 
and those he's entrusted to you while serving the world and its priorities. You give in to the desires of your flesh, though it never delivers what it promised. Do you seek for meaning and purpose in a career or accomplishments? Forsaking God's call to go and make disciples of all the nations of the world. Do you say, watch out over here. Let me first do this and that, and then I'll follow Christ. What you'll come to find is there's never a convenient time to follow Christ. There's nothing convenient about the way of the cross. It will always cost you your life. Lord, what are we to do, rebels in chains that we are, when you find yourself kicking against the goads, when rebellion is more costly than you ever imagined it would be? Well, listen to verse 13. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. For He has shattered gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. The Lord disciplines us and calls us out of our sin. And yet it's a work he accomplishes. For he's the one who breaks our chains apart. Has life ever felt like bitter labor to you? Has it ever felt like in your striving you just come to your end? And no one can help you, least of which yourself? Don't worry, I'm not fixing to give you a pull yourself up by your bootstraps talk. Because the very nature of bondage is this. You're at the mercy of another. You don't have the power to overcome bondage. Has God ever brought you to the end of yourself and your sin? Listen. Has the Lord's hand ever been so heavy upon you that it felt as if it was crushing you? The weight of the world and all your worries and fears bearing down upon you a place to where your striving finally ceases. A place where finally you come to the foot of the cross and you say, as the redeemed do, I give up, Lord. You're my only hope in this life, and I have no other. Have you ever come to the cross where you, where you find that the stripes of Christ deliver you and bring you healing not by your hand but by his I guess God chooses weak and despised (laughs) I think I've struggled through as much bondage and imprisonment and sin as just about anybody I know though some claim they've been more I've seen God deliver swiftly and decisively such as in my conversion. And I've struggled for well over a decade with things and found deliverance 
And still yet, there's things I've struggled with my whole life and continue to call out to God for, and they might be my thorn in the flesh. But I know one day He will finally deliver and redeem. The point's this, and I share it with my son continually. The Christian life is not a life of perfection found in yourself. That's the lie of Satan. The Christian life is a life of repentance and faith in the perfection of Christ alone. The gospel, that's our only hope. If we live it well, and I tell my son, you want to live a Christian life well? Well, let me tell you something. The frequency with which you'll be confessing your sins and repenting will sicken you. You'll get so tired of it because you're always in need to do it. At least I am. Repent, for today is a day of your salvation. Paul commands believers. This becomes our creed in life if we would wish to follow him well. But God, when we call out to him, delivers us from these things. And when he does, when he delivers us from the bondages of our flesh that clings so desperately to the sin that entangles us, we need to sing praises of thanksgiving and deliverance in all the assembly. This is the story we must live. However, Christ has ultimately set us free from the bondage of sin. And we no longer have to exist in slavery. This is the story we're living into. Listen to these scriptures. For we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. For it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery, the slavery of justification by the law. Don't live under that yoke. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. This is the great story of redemption we are living into until the day that Christ will finally wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. There will no longer be any curse. When the first things have passed away and the new heavens and the new earth have come, let the redeemed who hope in God's final deliverance sing praises with thanksgiving. This is the story we must be living into. It's the hope that we have that keep us from the shackles of our sin. The next story. The Lord's deliverance of fools in affliction. Verse 17. Fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. They consider death as a place, and so basically you're right on the brink of death. You're about to enter into that place. Well, who is the fool? This is an important question to answer. The rebellious sinner we just read about? The fool is the rebellious sinner who doesn't submit to the discipline of the Lord. That's the fool. He continues. He stiffens his neck. 
keeps going, doesn't let up. Some interesting characteristics of the fool that we'd find in Proverbs if we did a character study of the fool. Above all things, he's unteachable. Listen to how this plays out. Complacent, despises wisdom, relies on his own understanding, hates knowledge, is unable to learn from experience, is willfully blind to the truth, is unwilling to discipline himself, and won't even respond to harsh discipline. He's utterly unteachable. That's the fool. Well, it's interesting what God gives to this person in his loyal love. The fool, Proverbs shares that the fool won't change his ways outside of a radical conversion. Isn't that interesting? So the fool won't change his ways outside of a radical conversion. Well, look what the Lord does. He brings him to the point of death. Does that sound pretty radical? My, my body can't hold any food down anymore. I'm languishing away and I'm about to die. That sounds like a setup of a pretty radical conversion to me. What loyal love God has, even for the fool. I often tell students, I should tell adults as well, for they apply to all of us, beware the faithful love of God because his love is far more stubborn than our foolishness will ever be. It's a scary thing to come under the love of God because he never relents. So what of you? There's a little bit of fool in all of us. If I read all of this, everybody would feel real awkward about the characteristics of the fool. So there's a little bit of fool in us all. Have you ever come to your end? Let's consider foolish responses to a fallen world. There's four ways that people tend to respond wrongly to a fallen world. Figure out which one's yours as I share them. Here's the first one, detachment and denial. Pretend the world's not that bad. Detach from all those things. Stay on the west side of Lubbock. Detach. Stay away from all that stuff and live in a pretty perfect world. And then what we'll do is this. We'll control our world and create our own shalom, a little heaven on earth. That's one way that people try to deal with the fallen world. Women, are you trying to control your fallen world? Guys do it too. But I happen to know that's one that, uh, don't worry, the guys is coming next. That's one that women often struggle with, trying to control their world and all the world around them, denying the fallen reality there. Here you go, guys. How about, detach, how about um, distraction? Just escape from it. Retreat, go to my man cave. These are all cheap substitutes, so what I'm going to do instead is settle for a cheap substitute of the promises of God. And maybe I'll live in another reality on television or get lost in the internet. There's all kinds of things. I can become a workaholic and absorb myself in work, but any way I do it, I'm trying to escape the reality that there is. The next one is despair and depression where you utterly lose the capacity to dream of a better world and you become defeated by the fallenness of the world, saying to yourself, this is all there is. That's another way that people try to deal with this world. The fourth one, destruction, defeatism. If I can't beat them, I'm going to join them. And I'll start wreaking destruction as well. I'll strike out in anger. I'll yell. 
I'll destroy. That's how I'll respond. Or if you're like me, I'll go through the gamut. So I'll try to take control of my life, you know, in my better times. I don't know how that's better, but. Uh, and I'll deny the fallen world and take control of it. And then I'll realize I can't control it. And so I'll escape and detach from the fallen world and sink into escapism as the, the mounting wave of this world and everything comes upon me. And then I'll utterly be depressed and despair as if there's no hope. And then as that wave finally starts to crest, I'll just destroy it. Whereby I can start over again and take control of my fallen life. We all kind of goes in those cycles a little bit. Have you ever known which one you're inclined to? Or have you noticed those patterns of your life? This is the way in which we often play the fool as we continue to go to these places. And we go to these places for one reason and one reason only. Because they do give us some relief. Although it's only temporary and always a cheap substitute for what God really offers us. So we play the fool. As a dog returns to his vomit, so does a fool to his folly. Once again, there's no pull yourself up by your bootstrap story here. Look to the Lord. Call out to him. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe in Christ for deliverance. The gospel is the only power of God of salvation for those who believe, both in conversion and in sanctification. Verse 19, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. I can tell you when I experienced deliverance of God from impending death as a fool. I was 6'4". I'm 270 right now. I weighed 165 pounds. I was a heroin and methamphetamine addict. My body literally abhorred food. I couldn't eat, couldn't hold anything down. And I was languishing away in death. My mind, my body was decaying right before everyone's eyes. Then God sent his word, which is what he does here. He sent his word. And my best friend who became a believer two weeks before and roommate fumbled his way through the Roman road. And God in his mercy and grace delivered me. in a radical conversion because of the fool I was. Our great Redeemer in God redeemed me. Well, have you been redeemed by the Lord in your foolish ways? We're told to do something. Not only should you give praise with thanksgiving, but it goes beyond it here, and I want you to take notice Additionally, we're to give sacrifices of thanksgiving. Let me tell you what those are. The Israelites would stand at the altar of God and they would take the animal for their sin 
and they would set it down and roast it. I love it when they roast meat for sin. And they had roasted on the fire, and it was going to be used for the communal meal. And so they would stand there as he roasted this sacrifice on the fire, and he would tell of God's great deliverance to him as a fool. We often do the opposite. We get delivered for the fools we are, and we hide that stuff. Thanks, God. It's not what we're called to do. We're called to come and give a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Maybe that looks different here. Maybe it looks like guys standing by the grill roasted meat. I just want to stay with the theme. Uh, and sharing the way that God has delivered us in our foolishness. Maybe in my, I shared these messages with my wife and she got very distracted, so ladies don't get distracted. Maybe it's around an oven as you cook uh, tasty treats. Jill's like, do we have ingredients for a pecan pie? It's like, honey, focus, focus. Well, this is the story we need to live, the story of proclaiming God's praises and thanksgiving for his deliverance of us when we're fool in our foolish ways. And the story we need to live into, ultimately Christ is that offering that God has made for our communal meal. And we actually celebrate a meal called communion, a communal meal, whereby guess what we do? We partake of his body that was broken for us. We drink of the blood of the new covenant until when? Until he comes. And when he comes, we'll share that meal with him again at the great wedding feast with all the redeemed of God and with God in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the story we must continually live into. Final fun story, guys. Arr, get ready. Here come the pirates. This is the Lord's deliverance for seafarers at their wit's end. Boy, and this one speaks to life, I'll tell you. 23, those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters. They have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens they went down into the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and they staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. This story tells of the majesty of the Creator, the one who is over all things, sovereignly over all of creation. And with the ease of a command, a fierce storm raises up. And with just as much ease, he is able to calm it also. And when the Lord speaks and raises up a storm, it's so fierce that those who are the most skilled to handle seas utterly melt away. And I want to tell you what their wit's end means literally in the Hebrew because I think it's so great. They came to the end of their skill. They had no skill to try to match the great power of God and the great power of nature as it came upon them. They were at their wit's end. Have you ever been a victim of the forces of the natural world? Death is one of those now, too, by the way. Have you 
Have you ever come to a place in life when you were at your wit's end and all your skillful living didn't amount up to anything? Where you cried out to God and said, I got nothing. Well, I think that we all have chapters in our life where we've come to our wit's end. And I actually have one such seafaring venture that I'll share. I'd set out to sea with some family to the Dry Tortugas, 70 miles off the coast of Key West, between Cuba and Key West. And I was a new boater, so I had very little skill to speak of. It wouldn't have taken much to get me to the point of my skill being nullified by the forces of nature. Well, I set a course with GPS straight for the island I was heading, direct from point A to point B. Little did I know that you don't chart a course that way in the sea. You follow the currents, and you go a roundabout way to get where you're heading. Well, by going this path, we eventually came to the Rebecca Shoals. The Rebecca Shoals are in the middle of the ocean, for one. They're a place where there's deep water all around, and it rises up to being only 11 foot deep. It also happens to be the place where the Gulf and the Atlantic come to meet at that very point. Currents collide, and water depth raises dramatically. What do you think that's like? Well, I happened to go on a day where the seas were six to eight foot, no less. And my little 26-foot world cat was loaded down with supplies and fuel and water and everything I needed for a week of the dry tortugas and people, and it was riding low. And I entered into there, and you couldn't see past 20 foot because of how tall the waves were, and they weren't long rollers that you could negotiate. It was a washing machine like this, and they came over the bow and the stern. They came over port, over starboard. They were crashing over my boat all over, and we had literally come to our wit's end. We thought for sure we were going to die. We couldn't control it. We were out of control. The water was moving swiftly. There's nothing we could do. Minutes felt like hours, and we were so utterly exhausted, and we just had to keep going, but there was no skill. We were done. I'll never forget the feeling of helplessness and the exhaustion of trying to deal with that situation. The courage of the fearless crew had long since passed, and if not for the sovereign hand of God, the minnow indeed would have been lost. Now, granted, my story also borders on foolish affliction. Still yet, I'll never forget that feeling of being at my wit's end, and I know you guys know what that feels like, at least if you've lived life long enough. And in such a situation, there's only one thing you can do. You have no hope in this life. You have no hope by your hand. What do you do? Verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. So while God is able to raise the storm, he also has the power to silence it. What are your storms of life? You might be in one right now. 
Are you at your wit's end? Or can you remember when you have been? Have you ever called upon the Lord in utter desperation? And has he ever brought you to the calm? Do you call the sigh of relief and the overwhelming feeling of thanksgiving as you considered how precious life really is and how fragile it is? I remember when we left Rebecca's shoal and once where we could only see waves in an instant just as they came, we could see Fort Jefferson and the Dry Tortugas. I remember the great relief. I mean, we just collapsed. We were so exhausted. We had finally found safe harbor. The Lord had delivered us. Unfortunate for us, we were fools, so we were out of the frying pan in the fryer. We ended up suffering a boat wreck through a major storm and being stranded on the island for 28 days. But that's a story for another time. The redeemed of God who have weathered the storms of life and the great tempest of this chaotic world and have been brought to safe harbor through the redemption of God need to tell the story in the assembly of his people and give praises with thanksgiving to God for his loving kindness and for his sovereign rule even over the chaotic forces of nature. That's the story we need to live Listen, I'm going to quote Revelation 21.1. It's going to blow your mind. Listen to this. John says, Then I saw, this is his vision of the last day, the, la the final things to come, his vi the vision God gave him of the new heavens and earth. And I want you to listen because there's a theme of sea throughout Scripture which stands for the chaos of nature. Listen to what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any see the chaos of nature in this world finally passes that is the story we must live into so finally and I'm going to read through this quick because you've already gone through the stories this now typifies it all so I want you to understand the providence of God he, verse 33, he changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. See, he's the sovereign creator. He has control over all of nature. And just as the wicked think they're safe in rebellion, they soon discover their land has become a waste. And by the way, that's God's loyal love too. It's his discipline that they might cry out to him. 35, he changes a wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. And there he makes the hungry to dwell so that they may establish an inhabited city and sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. Also he blesses them and they great, multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease. So just the same, the righteous may be faced with obstacles that seem like they can't overcome. They're no hindrance to the Lord. He can reverse any situation in nature also to bless the righteous with the good life. So after seeing the Lord and how he can change nature for the detriment or benefit of people, he now tells us how the Lord changes people. When they were diminished and bowed down through oppression, misery, and sorrow, 
He pours contempt upon princes and makes them wander in a pathless waste. But he sets the needy securely on high, away from affliction, and makes his families like a flock. The upright see it and are glad, but all unrighteousness shuts its mouth. This is the pattern of the providential sovereignty of God. This is the way he carries out his redeeming love. And the natural conclusion to draw from all this is clearly stated next. Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord. Here's the point. Whatever situation you may find yourself in, you can always cry out to the Lord, knowing that he will answer you because he is faithful to his redeemed. He's faithful to hear and answer their prayers. He's faithful to deliver you. And when he does, praise him in his assembly. Praise him. Praise is nothing you ever do by yourself in Scripture, just so you know. Praise is always something you exercise before all others. Praise him with thanksgiving and tell of his great works. Because he's worthy and so that when others find themselves in a desperate situation, they too might call upon the Lord to deliver them. These are episodes that we've considered today. And they're really more like categories. And the reason they're here is for this. Because they should help to stir you to identify with these stories where you go, oh yes, let me tell you about the time when and I cried out to the Lord and here's how he delivered. By the way, he doesn't always deliver the way we cry out. But if you look and if you discern, you will see his deliverance. And even to say, and let's speak together and stir one another to the hope we have of how he will ultimately deliver us one day in the new heavens and the new earth. For our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the world that's to come. And so we can rejoice amidst great trials, both inwardly and without, knowing that Christ the Redeemer, God the Redeemer, will bring about his good and perfect purposes. So let you, the redeemed of the Lord, sing praises with thanksgiving. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your great redemption. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you stand as our high priest making petition on our behalf. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you groan with groanings too deep for words. Thank you for your care, God, in our sin. Thank you for your care for us in a fallen world. May we, your people, sing your praises of thanksgiving to your glory and praise. Amen. You're dismissed.